The following information on this episode is from personal opinions and cannot be guaranteed or warranted by this podcast or the creator in any way. In January 2008, 24-year-old real estate agent Lindsay Buziak received a phone call that anyone working in the industry would dream of. A couple on the phone was urgently looking to buy a home with a $1 million budget within just two days. Despite having a strange feeling, Lindsay decided to take on these new clients, a decision that would alter her and her family's life forever. I'm Jelsey May, and this is Exhibit May. Lindsay Buziak. Lindsay Buziak. Realtor Lindsay Buziak stabbed 40 times. Targeted. It was personal. It had to be a hit. He still has no answers. Born in Victoria, British Columbia, Lindsay Elizabeth Buziak was an outgoing, beautiful, vibrant, fiercely independent 24 year old with big ambitions and her whole life ahead of her. Her family said that she exuded warmth, a keen sense of fashion, an infectious laugh, and had a smile that lit up every room. It was no surprise that Lindsay became a socialite and a thriving real estate agent in her hometown. In early 2006, during her real estate course, Lindsay met a man named Ryan Zalo. Like many others, he was quickly intrigued by her, inviting her to dinners and events, and didn't think twice about introducing her to his mom, Shirley. Shirley Zalo had been a successful real estate agent since 1989 and was managing a real estate company called Remax. She was known to be one of Victoria's top agents and meeting her was an amazing opportunity for Lindsay. Shirley could see Lindsay's determination to succeed and helped her get a job at the Remax Camosun in Victoria not long after they met. As Lindsay's career flourished, she caught the eye of Shirley's older son, Jason Zalo a 6'3", 240-pound ex-hockey player who was now a mortgage broker and worked in real estate. Just like Ryan and everybody else, he was instantly drawn to her and didn't hesitate to ask her out. Things progressed quite rapidly between the pair, and after just two months of dating, Lindsay and Jason were in a serious relationship and already moving in together. Shirley bought the couple a $1.3 million home in the Shawnigan Lake area just 40 kilometers from Victoria and helped pay another $250,000 in renovations and furnishings. As a couple settled into their new home, things were going well, at least from the outside. Lindsay began telling her friends and family that she was homesick and that she and Jason's relationship started spiraling soon after moving in. For Lindsay, who wanted to be in charge of her own life, Jason and Shirley became way too overbearing to the point that, according to her father Jeff, Lindsay really started missing her ex Matt and had serious thoughts about leaving Jason. Jason was fucking overbearing and just, she she didn't like that at all. And she started crying and I said, honey, what's going on? She goes, daddy, I just fucking miss Maddie so much. I just miss the way it was with us. Jason is just a fucking mess. I gotta get out of this fucking mess. She was just really sad. But the couple worked things out and moved back to Victoria into a condo owned by Jason's brother, Ryan, where again, Shirley gave the couple another $70,000 for renovations. Just over a year later, in December of 2007, Lindsay took a trip to Calgary to visit her dad. 
The two shared a very special bond and Jeff prided himself in having the best friend type of relationship with his daughter where they could talk about anything. During a conversation on the couch, Lindsay vented to her dad about her relationship with Jason, saying that it was a wreck and didn't know what to do. Like, she came out to visit me for a couple reasons. It wasn't just, oh, hey, daddy, thought I'd pop in. She was like, dad, I need to come out and talk to you. I'm like, yeah, get out here right now. So she came out and she was like, fuck, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm in this situation. It's a fucking nightmare, dad. And I got to get out of it. I go, well, don't you love the guy? She said, no, he's a fucking idiot. Can't stand him anymore. Jeff was concerned and told her to break things off as soon as possible, but she persisted that she closed her five work deals first, which were on March 1st, to avoid losing any money. She goes, I can't. It's fucking complicated with Shirley. And she said, I got uh, four or five deals closing on um, March 1st. And she said, I can't leave. Like, Shirley will fuck that up. I won't get paid. She's known to do that. So I got to hang out, make sure those deals get closed. And, you know, it's probably maybe, let's say, 30 grand or something. And the two made a plan that after she closed those deals, she would end the relationship and move into her own apartment. But after returning from Calgary, Lindsay softened for some unknown reason and decided to give her relationship with Jason one last try. Jason brought her to Whistler with his family over the holidays and lavished her with a $30,000 diamond-studded watch and ring. Once settling back in Victoria after the new year, Lindsay was ready to focus on her career again and things finally seemed like they were heading in the right direction when she received a phone call that would change her life forever. In late January 2008, Lindsay received a call on her personal cell phone from an unknown woman who had an odd Spanish or Mexican accent. This woman said she had a $1 million budget, was looking for a home with her husband, and had very specific criteria of three bedrooms, three baths, and a separate area for a housekeeper. The couple had been transferred from Vancouver to Victoria and urgently wanted to close a deal within just two days during their upcoming visit to Victoria that weekend. Even though the call was something any real estate agent would dream of receiving, Lindsay felt uneasy. She wondered why these people called her specifically and tried making sense of the situation. She asked the caller how she had found her, and the woman explained that she'd been referred by one of her previous clients. However, Lindsay couldn't get a hold of this specific client because they were out of town. Still feeling unsure, Lindsay expressed her concerns to Jason, who also felt it was too good to be true and later told police that he reminded her of a similar situation that happened a month earlier. Apparently, Lindsay received a call from another woman with a $900,000 budget and ultimately yielded a sale, but reports stated that this was not true. Lindsay did sell a home in December to a woman named Louise. However, the price was in the $600,000 range and Louise was no mystery caller. They had met at an open house a few months earlier. Despite Lindsay's suspicions, she couldn't decline this unique opportunity and decided to work with the new clients. Over the following days, she spoke on the phone with the mysterious woman 10 more times. It's unclear whether the couple ever gave their names to Lindsay, but she never mentioned names to anyone or wrote them down. Lindsay only referred to them by the nicknames Million Dollar she had scribbled into her agenda and the Mexicans she saved in her phone. So when Lindsay called me, she was like, Daddy, I don't know what to show them. There's nothing, just this one house. Well, then show them the one fucking house. But, you know, that's quite the coincidence, right? 
On Friday, February 1st, Lindsay emailed her clients some vacant property listings. The couple replied saying they wanted to see the house at 1702 DeSousa Place that was on our list. The home was listed for $964,000 in a safe neighborhood called Gordon Head, located in a suburb of Victoria called Saanich. The 2,857-square-foot newly built luxury home was situated in a quiet little cul-de-sac that contained only four homes. It included five bedrooms and four baths, hardwood floors, ceramic tile and granite countertops, and was described as the ultimate dream home. This property seemed like the perfect fit for her clients and Lindsay promptly set up a showing for 5.30pm the next day upon their arrival. Later that night, Jason returned from hockey around midnight and Lindsay was awake, still concerned about the viewing. To ease her worries, Jason told her that he would meet her at the showing to ensure she was okay. She agreed it was a good idea, but said she wanted to do the actual showing alone, and Jason understood, saying he would wait outside. On the day of the showing, Saturday, February 2nd, 2008, Lindsay made a quick stop at Remax's Chatterton Way office, where she again expressed her concerns to the receptionist and a few other realtors. Lindsay felt conflicted about attending the showing and even asked her and another co-worker to check the phone number to see if any client records were linked to it with other agents around town, but they found nothing. Two realtors even offered to attend the showing with her, but Lindsay kindly declined, assuring them that Jason had promised to meet her at the house at 5.30pm. Feeling anxious, Lindsay left the office and had a late lunch downtown with Jason at a restaurant called Sauce. They paid the bill at 4.24 p.m. and the two then parted ways. Lindsay went home to change her clothes before the showing while Jason went to an auto shop called SHC Auto just five minutes from the restaurant. While Jason was finishing at the auto shop, Lindsay called for a brief conversation and told him she was on her way to the showing. When they finished their call, his phone rang again. It was Cohen Oatman. Cohen and Jason weren't known to be close but worked together at Terry Martin's Mortgage Center and played on the same hockey team. The two men discussed their dinner plans that evening and ultimately decided it was best to go to Lindsay's showing together before continuing their plans. Cohen agreed and met Jason at the shop and they were seen leaving in Jason's 2005 Range Rover at 5.30pm. The video surveillance camera showed Jason going to the vehicle's passenger side, then turning, looking up at the camera, and returning to the driver's seat. As Jason began driving, he discovered that his car's navigation system was having issues and called Lindsay to ask for directions. He managed to get directions, but their conversation was quickly interrupted when the clients arrived. The Mexicans are here. I gotta go, Lindsay said before hanging up the phone. Despite the male client telling Lindsay he would come alone, two witnesses, a woman walking her dog and a man driving past in his work van, saw Lindsay greeting the couple outside the house. A six-foot-tall Caucasian man with dark hair wearing a long coat and a blonde-haired woman aged between 35 to 45 wearing a distinctively patterned dress. At 5.29pm, the keys were removed from the lockbox and the trio entered the house. At 5.38pm, Jason sent Lindsay a text that read, just a couple of minutes away. A message Lindsay never opened. Jason and Cohen arrived at the cul-de-sac around 5.45pm and saw Lindsay's black BMW in the driveway. As they turned into DeSousa Place, they witnessed the couple step out of the house and go back inside. Jason thought the viewing had just started and, as promised, parked his car in the front of the property facing away from the house and waited in the car with Cohen. While they waited 10 minutes, Jason saw a figure move through the model glass window at the front door. 
Thinking he was a distraction, he decided to drive back out to Torquay Drive and park beside the house, hidden behind shrubs where the house was not viewable. The men then proceeded to sit there for another 10 minutes when Jason decided to send Lindsay another text, this time asking if she was okay. With no reply again, he called her multiple times, but there was no answer. 20 minutes had passed since they arrived and seen the couple go back into the house. And with no words from Lindsay, Jason started becoming concerned. The two men decided to walk over to the house and were surprised to find the front door locked. Lindsay's shoes were spotted at the entrance hall through the model glass at the front door, but there were no signs of movement. As it remained silent, Jason repeatedly knocked on the door and rang the doorbell 10 times. With no answer, he looked inside the lockbox where the key was missing. He then took a few steps and discovered an electronic keypad for the garage door. But he needed an access code and called his mother Shirley hoping she would know it, but she didn't either. At 6.05pm, Jason dialed 911. According to the transcript, Jason explained to the dispatcher that he and Lindsay were both realtors and she had agreed to show a property to a client from out of town. He also mentioned Lindsay's suspicions and that she was feeling kind of scared. He said that he had seen a man through the front door windows and how her car and heels were at the house but she wasn't answering her phone. He then told the operator they would find a way inside the house and hung up the phone. The two men walked around back where Jason helped Cohen jump over the fence. Once entering the backyard, he discovered the back patio door open and called out to Jason, letting him know that he would go through the home's main level to unlock the front door and let him in. Once both men were inside the house, Cohen stayed on the main floor while Jason later stated ran full speed upstairs and directly into the master bedroom where he quickly made a gruesome discovery. His girlfriend Lindsay was lying on her back in a large pool of blood. Jason tried to find a pulse and claimed that he attempted CPR, but it was too late. Lindsay was first struck from behind, which severed her spinal cord, then stabbed over 40 times in the head and chest. Her throat was slashed and her recently acquired breast implants were brutally mutilated. With no signs of sexual assault, defensive wounds, or robbery, this seemed like a deeply personal and rage-filled murder. Her murder was fucking personal. I don't give a shit what anybody tells me. Hitmen don't do that. Hitmen don't fucking sit there and stab somebody 40 times. They fucking shoot you in the head and leave. Lindsay's murder was set up like a play, like mm -hmm. a ballet. It was complicated. It wasn't a professional hit. At 6.11 p.m., Jason called 911 again. The attack was estimated between 5.38 p.m. and 5.41 p.m., the same time Lindsay's Blackberry made an accidental call from her back pocket to her friend's cell phone, which her friend later stated sounded like muffled sounds of struggle. At 6.30 p.m., police and first responders arrived and pronounced Lindsay dead and found Jason and Cohen upstairs in the master bedroom near Lindsay's body. They were then taken separately into custody. So they get Jason and Cohen Oatman down to the police station separately to interrogate them. They held them both overnight. Shirley showed up right away. And also she was phoning around right away for a defense lawyer. I got a call from a guy and uh, his brothers uh, were, his, I think, a Crown prosecutor. And Shirley phoned him and said, I need a fucking defense lawyer. My, you know, Jason's in fucking jail. Why would she need a defense lawyer? They took him in for questioning. 
As Jason and Cohen were being questioned, the crime scene was being secured. Investigators called the scene a forensic nightmare, as they combed the house and almost found nothing in the way of fingerprints, DNA, or other physical evidence to work with. Every room in the house was empty, and they had been cleaned just before the showing. The day before Lindsay was murdered, seven senior Saanich officers retired, which really yeah. struck me because I thought, like, nobody does that. So I phoned some of my government friends in Victoria and said, hey, do you ever, like, retire a whole bunch like that in one organization? They go, no, never. Like, that's not done because there's no continuity and, you know, all these different things. So that really puzzled me. And two of them were their top, like, investigators. That struck me as odd. And, of course, I looked at that and I thought, you know, coincidences are rare. But there's so many in Lindsay's unsolved murder, like so many. And that started it for me. Somebody had to know that. Senior officers don't work on the weekends. There was a transition of staff there. So who's fucking taken over? So they probably didn't start till Monday or Tuesday. And I since found out that the senior guys work like Tuesday to Thursday. Was that just a coincidence or was that insider info? When Shirley broke up with Paul Berkshoff, guess who she showed up dating? One of those seven senior officers that retired the night before Lindsay was murdered. So is that now a coincidence too? Like there's just, there's a hundred of them. Canine units were deployed but found no signs of the killers that had apparently escaped on foot. Women's size eight footprints were found outside the home, and police later questioned all Remax employees in Victoria about their shoe sizes, but nothing ever came of it. Investigators then looked closely into the cell phone the couple used to call Lindsay. The phone had been purchased with cash a few months earlier at a convenience store on Davy Street in downtown Vancouver and was registered under the name Paulo Rodriguez, which they determined to be a fake name. The phone was activated less than 48 hours before the murder in the same vicinity and was never used for anything other than contacting Lindsay. Tower Ping showed that the phone traveled on a ferry from Vancouver to Victoria the day before her murder and was deactivated soon after, never to be used again. The following day after the murder, the police released Cohen and Jason without any charges and brought Lindsay's ex-boyfriend of five years, Matt McDuff, in for questioning. Shirley Zalo, Jason's mother, told the police that the day before Lindsay's death, Lindsay had opened up to her during a walk and said she was scared of him. Shirley and Lindsay supposedly went for a walk the night before Lindsay was murdered. And on Dateline, Shirley said, Oh, she was very concerned and she was afraid of her previous boyfriend. Well, she wasn't at all. Like she loved him wholeheartedly, just their relationship wouldn't work. A little bit of a sad story. It was a very intense relationship. Like they both were just kind of obsessed with each other. Like they're very much in love, but it was just tense. All you know, it was either like over the top, great and fun, or the opposite. So that was kind of their relationship. So you know, they broke up a few times and they'd get back together because, you know, they were just like magnets. And then what really happened in the end, which I don't think has anything to do with murder, but they got back together at one point. Lindsay was pregnant. Matt had already um, committed to go on a family trip over to Europe and Lindsay wasn't going to go. 
she didn't kind of didn't want to go. She was terrified of flying. Plus, she was pregnant, and uh, it had all been booked and all that in advance. So she just didn't go. So she was sitting around. You know, he was there, and then she just decided, "I can't do this." So she aborted. Phoned up in Europe and said, "Sorry, man, can't do this." When Matt found out about the news, he was devastated, and according to her dad, Jeff helped in any way he could. He also had a solid alibi. He was with his new girlfriend, now wife, and her family on the day of the murder and was quickly dismissed as a suspect. On the other hand, it was only six weeks before the murder when Lindsay had allegedly told her dad that her relationship with her current boyfriend Jason was a wreck and that she was planning to break things off. But Jason denied those allegations and said they had a happy relationship. She's like, Jason's the fucking idiot. I can't stand him. He just fucking lurks around me all the time. He's like fucking overbearing and jealous. And, you know, she's like, I just can't be myself. He's like, we go out someplace. I talk to somebody. He's all fucking pouting and mad and won't fucking talk for a week and all upset. She goes, like, just a fucking mess. I got to get out of there. So, you know, and so I talked to her and I said, honey, look, like get fucking out now. Just like get out. But with no solid evidence linking him to the murder, the Saanich police announced that Jason was no longer considered a suspect. They phoned him back. I go, what the fuck's wrong with you? You're clearing them, but not us. Well, it doesn't work like that. We're not a fucking clearing organization. I go, well, obviously you are. I said, I want the final word here. What is the official word? And he goes, okay, here's the official word. The Zalo family has participated in polygraph interviews to our satisfaction at this time. They could have passed or failed or anything. He goes, Jeff, you wanted the official word. That's the word. I'm like, Craig, did they fucking pass or not? He goes, Jeff, I'm ending this call. You wanted the official word. That's it. You're not getting anything more. Then he smiled and said, Jeff, come on. Do you think... We fucking catch bad guys by telling the truth all the time? Come on, buddy. While Lindsay's dad and internet sleuths continue targeting Jason, the police soon came up with other theories of what could have happened. During their investigation, Saanich police closely examined Lindsay's laptop that Jason willingly provided. When investigators looked into Lindsay's online social life, the police noted missing chat messages on Facebook from January 24, 2008 to February 3, 2008, but couldn't determine who deleted those files and when those files were deleted. Upon researching her list of Facebook friends, they quickly learned that some were violent criminals involved in illegal drug distribution. One of those criminals was who was charged in January 2008 in connection with what was at the time the biggest cocaine bust in Alberta's history, with 67 kilograms of cocaine seized. Jackson was a high school friend of Lindsay's, and during her trip in December 2007 to Calgary, Alberta while visiting her dad, reached out to him once by phone and another time through Facebook. It's unclear whether the two ever met in person, but after the drug bust, people began to wonder if Lindsay was involved or if her killers were under the impression that she had mistakenly seen, heard, or revealed information she shouldn't have and had to pay the consequences. All 14 people arrested in that drug bust were offered a plea bargain, where they would get off without any charges or records if they gave the police information that would lead to an arrest for Lindsay's murder, but nobody came forward. 
Lindsay's dad, Jeff, stated that during her trip to visit him, she was extremely distraught about a situation where she saw something terrible and didn't know what to do, but couldn't tell him at that moment. To this day, Jeff remains haunted by those words. She was really nervous and she was like, Daddy, I saw something I shouldn't have seen. And I was like, Linz, what? She goes, Daddy, I can't tell you right now. I'm like, Linz, fuck, you got to tell somebody. What if something happens to you? Like somebody has to know. She goes, I know, I know, Daddy. She says, I'm going to tell you, but not right now. I'm going to handle it first. I asked Jeff what he thinks Lindsay saw. One of two things. It wasn't drugs and money. I think it was murder and or sex trafficking. And it involved people that shouldn't be involved. So in other words, like politicians, lawyers, you know, whatever. Somebody in Victoria who's not supposed to be in that game and saw something that was not fucking good. Later in 2008, Lindsay's good friend Nikki was awoken by an unknown phone call in the middle of the night from a woman with a foreign accent. This woman mumbled a few words and hung up. After quickly remembering Lindsay's similar phone call, she instantly called the number back, but there was no answer. Nikki was determined to figure out who this mysterious caller was and kept trying. 30 phone calls later, someone finally picked up. It was Shirley Zalo. Now, Shirley's story, the other story, was that staff member didn't show up at work, so she was calling a Nikki, who was the office manager at the head office of Remax. Their names are spelt differently, but both of them are Nikki, which I found strange because Shirley manages her own office, so I don't know what the hell she's doing phoning the other office to do that. But nonetheless, Shirley's stories are always interesting. And then she said, of course, I wasn't using an accent. I don't know what the hell's wrong with that girl. And I said, well, why did you call that number? She said, well, I don't know. I saw Nikki. I go, well, what was Nikki's number doing in your phone? And she said, well, Jason must have put it in there because he had my phone the day he got out of jail. And he went with Nikki and Carrie. So I said, why would he put the number in your phone? She goes, I don't know. Despite her suspicious behavior and the fact she worked in the same office as Lindsay and had access to all her information, in late 2009, the Saanich police cleared Shirley and her entire family as suspects. Anybody can be a suspect. Everybody's a suspect till there's arrests, as far as I'm concerned. And the cops keep saying, Calgary drug bust. But, I, you know, analyzing the cops over the years, They've got a very precarious role they have to play. One, you know, they have to protect this file and they can't get anything out. So they've been trying to sort that out as time went, goes on. And so they got to, you know, they're kind of like peacekeepers. So they can't lead anybody to believe who's this, who's that. So their easiest way to deal of it is chase everybody to a drug bust that involves the cartel. So that doesn't jeopardize anything. And it makes it kind of like, impossible so from my perspective and my uncle got me onto this right away he's ex-decorated detective and uh i had a couple serious talks with him and he just said jeff okay look here's the deal everything they needed to know was in that house and he said they fucked up and now they're trying to catch up or cover up 
Expert crime investigators explored many theories, but ultimately concluded that Lindsay was an innocent young woman who witnessed something she shouldn't have and agreed that whoever planned her murder was someone she knew well and had inside information from working in the same business or possibly even in the same office. Not only did it revolve around real estate, it revolved around a corporate transfer. And most people don't know how those work. You probably don't know how they work unless you're involved with it. And I know how they work because I've been involved in them. And I was talking to Lindsay lots during this thing. And it was a corporate transfer. So the woman phoned up and said, you know, my husband's being transferred to Victoria. The company's going to pay us to come out for a weekend to do house shopping. I hope we can find something. So what happens on a corporate transfer is the company will usually allow you two visits to try and find a house. And if you don't, the husband or woman, wife, has to go to work and then they don't pay for any more visits. So then you have to sort it out. But they'll guarantee the sale of your house and pay for the moving and stuff. Whenever I was involved with a corporate transfer, when I used to do residential, they were serious about trying to buy a house. So people find that odd. Oh, nobody can buy a house in three days. Yeah, they do. I mean, yeah, you don't own it in three days, but you write an offer, you know, that's accepted, blah, 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 blah. So it was set up like that. So who would, not only does somebody know about real estate, but somebody knew about corporate transfer. Lindsay's murder is not complicated, but it is. I think after 15 years, my analysis has been for quite some time. Just, you know, pretty young girl, wrong spot, trying to get out, can't leave. Know too much, you die. Saw something you shouldn't have seen. Too many people's lifestyle at risk and uh, they couldn't afford to take the risks so terminate. That's the deal. You know, I've already been warned that we'll probably never get to the heart of it. They'll arrest somebody as a, you know, a token. Here we solved it, now shut the fuck up. It's been 15 long years since the passing of Lindsay Buziak with no answers or any arrests in the case. With the lack of results from Saanich police and their investigation, Lindsay's father, Jeff Buziak, has taken action into his own hands and in 2022 hired a private research and investigation firm in the hopes of moving the investigation forward. Investigators are currently reviewing and retesting evidence, including items from the crime scene, which may take up to a year to produce any results. It's been a fucking struggle for me. And my heart's in the right place. I don't give a shit about me. I just want justice. I want to go away. I just want fucking arrest for the murder of my baby. While Jeff desperately waits for answers, he has kept his daughter's memory alive by organizing a walk in Victoria, BC every February 2nd in Lindsay's remembrance. He has also stayed active on social media discussing his daughter's case and has created a blog to generate conversation. Well, the message out there right now is you can kill a woman and get away with it. I don't like that. That's why I'm doing this for Lindsay, to put the message out there. No, you don't fucking get away with it. Here we are 15 years later with a bunch of bullshit from the police. That really disturbs me more than anything else. How the system, really how our system is set up right now, protects the criminal. Lindsay wasn't protected. They have suspects. They know who did it. Why don't they tell us? because they have to protect them. This was local. This is a village issue. This isn't an angry dad issue. This is something we all got to get behind. This is something that needs to be solved. 
And we got some killers kicking around in that community and we got to flush them out. People there know stuff and they're not coming forward. I loved Lindsay with all my heart, completely. And to do that, you have to commit to yourself that you will give your life for your children. I couldn't stand there and take the punishment instead of Lindsay, but I will sacrifice the rest of my life to find out who killed her, and I don't care what it costs. If you have any information on this case, you can contact Saanich Police Tip Line at 1-888-980-1919 or tips at saanichpolice.ca. You can also use Crime Stoppers Anonymous at 1-800-222-TIPS. enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and follow me on Instagram at Exhibit May Podcast.